Well, good morning. It's good to be here again this morning, and I'm looking forward to opening God's Word together and continuing to worship Christ together. As we turn to this section of Mark, um, we're once again entering into a process. Um, Mark is, in a way, journaling. He's journaling from from one sense, journaling this process that the disciples are in with Jesus. They're going from being complete strangers to Jesus, you know, just a handful of chapters ago, to now having seen Jesus do some very remarkable things, like heal a dead girl, or, you know, raise someone from the dead, or calm a storm that was uh, surely killing them, feeding the 5,000. They're going from a process of seeing Jesus as a rabbi who's worthy enough to follow, to seeing Him as something more. And I think you'll appreciate this. The more they understand who Jesus really is, the more they feel that claim of Jesus on their own lives. Right? I mean, you could think of a favorite teacher that you had in elementary school or high school or or college. Right? You can think, Why did I love that teacher so much? I had one of these teachers in college. I took classes from him even though they had nothing to do with advancing my major. And he was the hardest teacher that I knew of in the college. He was written up in magazines as the second hardest professor in America. I don't know how you get that moniker, but but he was amazing to sit and, and, and be taught by. And he made you think. And if you missed class, he would call you and say, where were you? So... I can think of this teacher and think, oh, I, 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 there was a sense of um, respect and admiration for this person. But he didn't have a claim on my life other than I made sure to go to class, right? Because I didn't want to get the phone call. The more these disciples get to know Jesus, what we're, what we're able to enter into is this wrestling that they're going through. Uh, it's one thing to follow a man who can teach people with authority and heal people. I mean, that's actually kind of fun. It's an honor to be that posse, traveling around. Um, it's an adventure. Um, you get to see all these miracles, and you maybe get to get asked questions. Hey, what's Jesus like? What's his favorite food? Uh, what do you guys talk about when you're just hanging around the campfire? I mean, you're in this inner circle of the greatest person that's ever walked the earth. But, but what if this person is more than just a person. You can start to feel this tension of what are we going to do about that? As they move from being these passive observers to being brought into being actually extensions of Christ's very body, animated by His very power to carry out the very purposes that He's come to the earth to extend. Not just to this tiny pocket in Jerusalem during the ancient times, but for all time across the whole globe? And what if these disciples are going to be the apostles that are going to become the foundation for this entire thing called the church? And so, so as we go through these chapters of Mark, we've seen just a little while ago how Jesus has already sent them out and given them authority to cast out demons and, and do stuff. And they had just come back from that when Jesus fed the 5,000. And seeing him feed the 5,000, seeing this bread and fish just 
emanate from Jesus' body as he continues to hand it out to the disciples as they come to him and get more and take it to the crowds. As they see this, they should have understood. They should have understood, and and that's what Mark says here. Their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves. They still didn't understand fully who he was. They were still trying to wrap their minds around it, which is fair. I would certainly be in that situation. So as we come to this passage, we're going to, to we're, we're proceeding into this. I, I just want to set the context. This is where we are, and, and it's appropriate when we read this to empathize and to appreciate where the disciples are in this story so that we can understand the journey that God needs to take all of us on as well. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether you're 14 years old or 11 years old, this is, this is a storm that we all have to go through. This is agitation with the person of Jesus that we all have to, to wrestle with if our faith is going to be real. If we're going to be if we're going to move with the disciples from being passive observers and happy members of the posse to actual living members submitted to and animated by Christ Himself. That's the journey that Christ wants to take everyone on. And that's why Mark says the things that he says and the way that he, he unfolds the story, the way he unfolds it. The way Christ lived His life, the way He lived it so that it could be written this way and and invite us all in to be um, intertwined with Him. I could say a few things just about miracles. Um, Miracles aren't just here as kind of a fireworks display of God's glory and, and Jesus getting attention and gathering a crowd. I would say miracles are almost in spite of the crowd. Miracles... Miracles are always here as signs that point to something else, that point to something that otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand or something that would be impossible for us to believe. So I think that miracles are there either to illuminate or to do both, to illuminate something or to just be like a concussive artillery shell into, into to a wall that, would, that, that we couldn't see through or we couldn't surmount. They're there to demolish something that's in our way so that we can apprehend something that God needs us to apprehend. They blow through our rationality. They blow through our, our naturalism and, 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 and our, our modernism. And then they bring something of God to us that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get. That's what miracles are always in the Bible to do. And this is an, 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 an exception. So, so what mystery... Um, is God revealing to His disciples here? What, what's the point of Jesus walking on the water? We're going to see two different things. Um, first, He's walking on water to reinforce the fact that He is God. Jesus is Yahweh. We saw this last week, but they didn't understand it. And so He's going to do something again in a different way to show that He's Yahweh. That's gracious. That's amazing, really. Um, he doesn't just um, show up on the other side and scold them and, and give them a teaching about the loaves. He does something else. He's continuing to circle back and, and bring them along. So, first, he reinforces the fact that he is God, that he's Yahweh in the flesh. And then secondly, this picture of Jesus walking on the water and then getting into the boat with the disciples, this is, in a, in a sense, 
searing into our minds, into their minds, and searing into our minds the nature of the gospel. So we're going to talk about that. So he's demonstrating that he's God, and he's doing this very visual thing that sears into our minds what the gospel is like, what Jesus is like. And, and so that's, I think those are the two things at least today that we're going to look at. The context. First of all, the disciples, as we look at this story, they're stuck. They're exhausted. They were exhausted before the last parable, right? When they came back from this long journey where they were teaching and doing miracles and, they, and, it, and Jesus says or, or recognizes that they haven't even had enough leisure time to eat something. So they try to get away and you know the story, so they don't get away. They, they end up having to sit around and listen to Jesus teach for a long time. And then they have to participate as uh, hosts and, and waiters for this banquet. And then after that banquet is over, Jesus says, all right, you guys, you get in the boat and I'll dismiss the crowd. So you guys go away. And there's a backstory there that, that Mark doesn't record, but other gospel writers do. So we're not going to do it. But there's a reason there that Jesus wants the disciples to just kind of, you've got to get out of here before this thing gets out of control. And before you guys get the wrong idea of who I am. Because in fact, the crowds were trying to get Jesus to sign up as the new king. You know? All right, let's do this. And the disciples didn't know enough about Jesus and his mission to not be into that. So Jesus is like, all right, it's going to get real here. And, and people are going to start chanting some stuff and, and maybe making signs. And so you guys go to the other side, and I'm going to dismiss the crowds, and then I'm going to go and, and, and pray. So that's what happens. And so they get in this boat. They're already, again, exhausted before this journey even starts. They're in a rowboat. So don't, I thought, you know, I always imagine this is a sailboat. It's not. They're rowing. There's like gunnels and oarlocks, and they're, they're having to go across a four-mile sea. That's a four-hour trip, and you're taking turns, but that's a lot of rowing. I rowed in college um, like 25 years and 35 pounds ago, and, and it's hard. Like, it's hard work. Um, it's romantic-looking. It's, it's elegant and graceful, but it's just hard work. And so they're having to row across this thing that's four hours' journey, and they're already tired, and, but they're, in the, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and it's like in a bowl or, and mountains all around it, and so it's, it's um, susceptible to these huge storms that just blow up out of nowhere because the wind comes down from the cold mountains, and it hits the warm water, and, and you just get these crazy storms, and we've seen that already in the Gospel. So they hit one of these while they're trying to row, and, and they get exactly to the middle of the lake, and they're done. It, and when Jesus sees them from the shore and has pity on them, it's between, I think, um, like three and six in the morning. They left at dinner time. They, they had dinner, and then they left. They've been rowing all night. It's almost dawn, and Jesus has compassion on them and comes out. So this is the... This is the situation that they're in. They're stuck. They're stuck physically. But I think, interestingly, this storm is an illustration of where the disciples are stuck spiritually and mentally and emotionally as they're trying to get their heads around. Is, is this just... He seemed like a teacher at first. And then he started doing these miracles. 
And, and he's got these words that he says that you know carry this weight. And, 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 and he has the words of eternal life, not like our scribes. And, and they're starting to have this budding attachment to Jesus that goes deeper than just being a student or a devoted uh, member of the crew. But, but now he's done this thing with the loaves, and, and there's maybe they're, they're wrestling. They're stuck. And that's important for us to understand because, again, they're on a journey. And here's something that's really important for you to understand and for me to understand. This isn't the last time they're going to get stuck. And Peter's going to get stuck even after Pentecost when he's up on Cornelius or up on some tanner. I can't remember the, 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 the name of the tanner. Um, and he's, he's up there on the roof, and that blanket comes down, remember? And, and Jesus himself says, go to the Gentiles. Go to Cornelius' house. Hey, take and eat this stuff. I'm not going to eat that stuff. That stuff's gross. That stuff's unclean. Anyway, this isn't the last time that they're going to be stuck and not get the gospel and not get the point. That's good for us to know. They're, honest, they're in a storm now, but it's not the last one. This is part of it for all of us. It's part of genuine faith is that we hit these spots where it's just difficult and we wrestle and maybe we doubt and maybe we resist Christ coming and putting His finger on something or laying claim to something. We resist. We don't want to play. We, we liked it better the old way when He only wanted this from us and now we feel like He's calling us to something else. And, and, and it's uncomfortable. So that's where these guys are. In the middle of the water, in the middle of a storm, totally wrung out, equidistant between both shores. What are you going to do? And asking these questions. Who is this person? What does it all mean? What have we gotten ourselves into? He's, is he just a, another teacher or a miraculous prophet? Why, why is he even here? How will this end? So their physical struggling and painful attempt to make headway through the storm was a picture of their spiritual struggle to try to understand who Jesus really was. So that's the context of what happens. So let's look at these two things that Jesus does as as a result, or, or, or as they're in the midst of this. It says, <clears throat> He saw that they were making headway painfully in verse 48. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night He came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. So the first thing that He does is He shows them who He really is. He's going to reveal His, his deity once more to His disciples. He wants them to understand that He is Yahweh. And He did it with the loaves, but they didn't understand. And so now, He's going to demonstrate once again that He's Yahweh, the King of creation, by walking on water, which only the King of creation could do. Only the author of natural laws could walk across the water. And that's what He's doing. So He's, he's doing something that you and I would never do. He's just going to step out against the law of gravity and surface tension, right? And buoyancy. 
he's going to just step out and walk across this raging you know, um, tempest of a sea and wind and walk to them. And it's interesting, he says he meant to pass by them. Now, how many of you have read this and just thought, dang, that's cold, <laughs> right? That's how it reads. What? I mean, you're just going to keep walking? Like, you want to get there first? Is this like a competitive thing? Is it like, check me out? I'm God and you're not. Um, how's it going, guys? So what's that all about, that he's going to pass by them? It's interesting. This is the only other time in the Bible that this occurs besides in Exodus chapter 33. When Moses has found favor in God's sight and they're having a conversation and it's going well. The conversation's going well. And we know from the text that, that Moses has found favor in God's sight. They've been through a lot together. And, and Moses has been faithful. And it's sacrificial. And, God, and he says, God, can I see your glory? I, I'd like to. I mean, we talk and I obey and, and, and we have these meetings and I can hear you. Could I see your glory? And so in this passage from the Old Testament that you may be familiar with, God takes Moses and puts him in the cleft of a rock and he passes by him. And then, at, like the kind of the twilight of God's glory, he, he removes his hand and, and allows Moses to just catch this glimpse of the setting sun of God's glory, so to speak, as God has passed by. That's what Mark says. That's how Mark constructs this phrase. And again, it's the only other place. Jesus Christ is Yahweh walking on the water and He's going to pass by His disciples. He is God in, in the fullness of God's radiance of His glory and He's going to come walking past the disciples so the disciples can see His glory. Not just a glimpse of it, but He's walking toward them. That's what it means. So it's, it's far from being cruel. It's beautiful. It's, it's that God is in our midst and in a different way than He was with Moses. There's application there too. That we hear in other parts of the Bible, God did this for Moses because Moses had found favor in His sight. The disciples get this when their hard, hard hearts won't even understand who Jesus is. They're resisting. They're bucking against the claims that they're feeling in, in their minds, in their hearts, and they're, they're doing the math on what will my life look like if this is really true and I have to throw in everything with this rabbi from Nazareth. What's that going to be like for my business, for my family, for my identity, for my reputation? This isn't what, is this what I signed up for? It's not really. In the midst of their hardness of hearts, Jesus comes to them. Not when they had figured it out. Not when the conversation was going well. That's really important for us to remember. So, it's not just that, they, that, that He shows them His glory. It's what He says. So, <clears throat> He passes by them. And, and, it, and it says in, in Exodus 33... Um, and he said, I will make my, all my goodness pass before you and will pr proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, I am. That's in Exodus. 
we see that when Jesus passes by His disciples and they're terrified, He says in verse 50, For they all saw Him and were terrified. But immediately He spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Same word. Ego emi in the Greek. It's, it's where we see in John's Gospel like all those I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. All those. So, in, in John's Gospel, he uses that phrase repeatedly to demonstrate, to have Jesus demonstrate verbally his, his identity as God. But here he does the same thing. He walks on water. He passes by them. And he proclaims, I am. Do not be afraid. So he does this to demonstrate that he is God. Yahweh in the flesh. But secondly, he does this as a picture for the disciples as they're on their journey to going from from being strangers to Christ to being part of his posse and following him around to, to becoming these living extensions of members of his body animated to do his work and to sacrifice and to give everything for him and to become who he's called them to be, just like us. So what's the picture of the gospel that we see here? Jesus passes by them, but not with the intention of keeping on going. He comes and he gets in the boat with them. Separate things. So passing by is not to, to leave them behind, but it's, to, it's almost like used in the sense of a parade. He's going to parade his glory by them. And then he's going to get into their boat. And what happens as soon as he gets in the boat? The storm stops. And it's been going all night. And as soon as Yahweh sits down in the boat, the storm is over. God is here. God is in our midst. It's different. It's, we talked about this some last week. God's not just out there somewhere. God is coming all the way here to us. It's this picture for you and for me that even when we're in the midst of doubt, even when we're in the midst of resistance and wrestling, Jesus doesn't think that we stink when that's going on. He's not thinking, well, you sort that stuff out. You figure whose team you're on. And then you come call me. I'll be over here, same as always. And when you've got your junk worked out, you come call me and we'll talk. That's not how Jesus is. That's not the Gospel. That's even how it's presented in the Old Testament with Moses. So that's not really true. Here, it's obvious. It's all about grace. It's all about Christ coming to us when we were yet sinners. When we were in the midst of it. Some of these guys might have been saying, I can't wait to get to the other side because I think I'm going to bounce. Maybe. You don't know. The whole crowd came around and met them again. And Jesus said, you're only here because I fed you last time and you want to see me do something else. But here's the deal. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be one of my disciples. And the crowd left in mass. And that's when Jesus asks the disciples, what about you? Are you going to leave also? And Peter says, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? We know you have the words of eternal life. Jesus comes to us in the midst of our struggles, folks. And these struggles are normal. These periodic, significant wrestlings, it's part of being transformed from a stranger to Christ 
into someone who's a, a pulsing, animated member of Christ's body. And these wrestlings, each one of them is like God unkinking another hose between him and us, where his grace can now flow more, more freely to us, and, and his grace can flow from us more freely to other people. So don't, don't feel bad when you're wrestling with something. Press into it. And know that as you work this out, Christ isn't standing far off from you. Christ is there yearning to come and, and reveal his glory to you and say, look who I am. What else do you need? And, and if I'm in the boat with you, if our lives are intertwined like this, you're going to be okay. The storm's not going to get you. And in fact, in the Gospels, the other Gospels, it shows that as soon as he got in the boat, immediately they were at their destination. They're in the middle of the ocean, or sea, with these high, high waves. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, the sea is calm, and hey, land ho. Crunch, crunch, goes the gravel on the beach. You know, what happened just now? Except that Yahweh has come and, and, and brought himself clear, clearly near to us, but but as he'll go on to say, I'm going to be in you. Just as I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, I will be in you and you will be in me. As Paul will go on to say, you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So he's here searing into our minds the nature of the gospel, the nature of grace, that while we're yet sinners, he comes all the way to where we are. In the midst of our nasty struggle, in the midst of our cussing and, and clenched fists and shaking our heads and wondering if it's all worth it or what have we gotten ourselves in, whatever it is. Maybe brought on just by a trial, maybe brought on by sin, maybe brought on by something that the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on that he wants from you. Whatever it is, Christ comes in the midst of it. That's a picture of the gospel. That's God with us. It starts with, Jesus coming and being laid in a manger in a lowly place so that even dirty shepherds could come to him. And it ends with the veil being torn from top to bottom after Christ has crucified the bread of life, having shed his blood to nourish us all and bring us all to his presence, blameless with great joy, to forgive all of our sins. It's, it starts with God with us and it ends with God with us. And in the midst of all of it, folks, we're, we're just on this journey where he's bringing us along. And he never loses sight of us. So as we consider this text, we can know, and we do know, that, that the result of this was the disciples worship him. First they're terrified, then they're astonished. And then I think it's Matthew who says, and then when the, the sea was calm, they worshiped him. That's the end game. God is bringing us again from being strangers to bowing our knee and saying, you're God, you're God. You can organize everything about me. You can arrange everything about me. In you, all things hold together, including me. So you be my king. You be my ruler. I'll yield to you. That's what worship means. So that's the end game. He's bringing us from strangers to worshipers. So as we think about this and the effect that it had on the disciples, let's embrace the kindness of God to not have had this happen in a corner, but have recorded it in all three or three of the four Gospels so that we can always come back to it 
so that we can always remember when we're in the midst of a storm that God is with us. As we say here, as you say here, I wish we did in, in, at Holy Cross, but as we say every week, is the Father with us? He is. Is Christ among us? And is the Spirit here? In the midst of every storm, in the midst of every trial, in the midst of every temptation, God never removes Himself from you. God always comes toward you, and He never loses sight of you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.